Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. I got to deliver a notice to the witches. They were an actual witch coven. I got to deliver a notice to them to vacate the building, and I asked them to repent. The leader of that group said to me, she named the date that I was sitting in the parking lot in my car, even though they weren't there at that time. And she said, we knew something was up because on that day, we lost our power. And I said, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? She said, we lost our power. She said, we gained power from this spot because of the trauma that happened to all those kids. And the day, we don't know what happened that day, but that day we couldn't do our rituals. We lost our power. Well, that's the day that one single person, me, not because I'm so powerful in the spirit, but because I came into agreement with what was Jesus was praying. One voice on the earth with our God in heaven coming into agreement was enough to shut down their power. It's not when I speak and rail against them. It's when I come into agreement with God. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today we conclude our conversation with Dr. Laura Sanger and Timothy Bentz. And the first portion of this is going to be a repost of Dr. Laura's story that she told uh, in the latter half of the previous episode, just to set up what Tim Bentz is responding to and some of the lines of thinking that we go into afterwards. So if you have just listened to that recently and you want to skip ahead to Tim's response, go ahead and skip ahead about 30 minutes into this episode and that will pick up uh, where we left off. And Tim shares some deep principles in terms of healing uh, our land and uh, being able to uh, overcome dark spirits through a principle of gatekeeping as well as what he calls identificational repentance that we can, on behalf of another, on behalf of uh, an area, we can come before the Lord 
and repent and heal uh, an area and see people set free and see uh, dark spirits that had a hold on an area uh, no longer have that hold. So many good nuggets of spiritual truths uh, between Dr. Laura and Tim and it was our privilege to have them on and we hope to do so again soon. Guys, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment to help us grow this channel, get the show out to more people, um, to expose them to these important topics and conversations. You can do that simply by clicking a five-star review, leaving a positive review, sharing it with your family and friends on your social media accounts. All those things help to grow the channel. If you'd like to support us further, there's a support link at the bottom of the show notes and you can choose a support level as low as 99 cents per month if you have any questions or comments for us on the show feel free to give us an email at the days of noah podcast at gmail.com and with that let's conclude our conversation with laura and tim What he taught me was that the storms he had me command were storms that water spirits had stirred up. And so um, I, as I was preparing for this trip, um, now I'm going to tell you about a trip I took, a ministry trip, and I have to use fictitious names and locations because there is still a spiritual mapping assignment and spiritual warfare going on in this location. And um, we need to just move stealthily or be stealthy because um, the, we want to wait until the Lord's work is completed and the victory is secured. So I'm just going to use some fictitious names. Um, so anyways, I, I traveled to a major metropolitan area in, in the United States and I went to a suburb of that major city, and this suburb was located on the lake. So I'm going to call it Lakeshore. And in my preparation prior to going, I was reading Psalm 144. And as I was reading it, the Lord told me that Lakeshore is dealing with water spirits. Now, I want to take a moment just to kind of lay out a biblical foundation um, as far as our understanding of what are water spirits in the water kingdom. So there are three realms that are talked about in, in the Bible, the earth, the waters, and the heavenlies. And let me read Exodus 20, verse four. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So there's the three realms. Then Ezekiel 26, 16 says, Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished at you. Well, those princes of the sea are the gods of the water kingdom. Now, 71% of the earth's surface is covered by water. And Satan has chosen to build his power base in the waters. And we see this in Romans 13. It says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, 
with 10 crowns on its horns and each head had a blasphemous name. So the beast arises out of the waters. Now, the water kingdom is mighty and, you know, so many Christians are unaware of it. I was until really the Lord brought my attention to it this summer. After 25, 26 years of doing spiritual mapping, the water kingdom was not on my radar. And that just goes to show, you know, the Lord leads us when we're ready to receive revelation. And I'm so grateful that he has shown me some of these things. So as I'm reading scripture, one of the things that the Lord um, showed me as well is that oftentimes the phrase mighty waters in scripture is actually referring to the water kingdom and to water spirits. So I want to read Psalm 29.3, and it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Okay, so the first mention of waters in this passage is referencing the water that covers the earth. The second mention of water in the phrase mighty waters is, again, that's referring to the water kingdom. And we learn this by looking at the Hebrew word for mighty that's used in this passage, and it's rav. And it means abundant, great, and strong, but it also means captain, chief, and prince. And so these, this phrase, mighty waters, is referring to the prince of the waters or the gods of the waters or water spirits. So now back to the preparation for this trip I'm taking. I have a team of intercessors. I call them strike force intercessors because they are amazingly accurate and just like strike at the root of issues. I love them. And we were just all preparing, asking the Lord to show us the spiritual dynamics over Lakeshore, because I had been called there by a group of intercessors um, to train them about spiritual mapping and to help them understand you know, what they're facing. So one of the intercessors um, on the Strike Force team, the Lord began showing him that this, this area, this region is dealing with mind-numbing black goo. Egyptian-based paganism and a Jezebel spirit. And what he saw is he literally saw black goo, this is in the spirit, dripping out of squid and octopus spirits that were mounted over the sanctuary doors of churches. And so as people are walking into the church, that black goo covers them and they're, um, they track it all throughout the church. Well, at the same time he received that, I was reading um, portions of John Eckhart's book called Marine Demons. And this is what John says. He says, squid and octopus spirits are mind binding and mind controlling spirits that have tentacles wrapped around the minds of people hindering them from thinking clearly. These spirits cause much confusion and keep people from seeing the truth. These are powerful spirits that often require fasting to break. So then another one of my intercessors, um, she saw in the spirit a water spout that formed over the lake. So Lake Shore, the city is, you know, on the, the shore of a large lake. And this water spout formed over an area called Turtle Cove. And again, that's fictitious um, name. And Turtle Cove currently is this massive real estate um, development where there's going to be a huge resort, lots of housing and businesses. 
Well, what the Holy Spirit showed her is that the debris that's flying out of this water spout were squid and octopus. So then I start doing a bit more research. And one of the things that's so beautiful is oftentimes we see that the Lord brings confirmation in the natural realm to what's happening in the spiritual realm over a territory. So you will see natural manifestations of what's going on in the spiritual realm. So anyways, I'm researching Turtle Cove and um, I find a video that is a rendition of what it will look like once the resort is completed. And they have this in the middle of the the bay or um, the part of the lake that they're building in. They have this massive water feature that has these huge jumbotrons. And there's a video playing on the jumbotron and it's featuring squid and octopus. And so I know that, okay, the Lord is um, leading us down this trail. Well, then... Also, we discover that the land where this Turtle Cove is being developed, um, that land has been defiled by broken covenants and corrupt business deals. So back in the 80s, a large real estate developer um, was who was in large part responsible for the, the housing crash of 87, he was developing land near this Turtle Cove, and he and five others went to prison over the fraud that was committed with those land developments. So you have, you have fraud, you have broken covenants in that land. Well, the current deal of Turtle Cove is wrought with corruption. And so the former economic development director of Lakeshore was the one to establish this deal, and it was a massive pay-to-play scheme. And he actually fled the state because of lawsuits over how corrupt um, this this um, Turtle Cove development is. So we're gathering that information. And then one of the things the Lord um, speaks to me is that the water God that they're dealing with in Lakeshore is Rahab. And this isn't Rahab from Jericho. I'll, um, I'll, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures that kind of help us understand this water God Rahab. This is from Psalm 89, verse 9 through 10. It says, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Then Job 9, 13 says, God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Job 26, 12 says, by his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. And then Isaiah 30, verse 7 says, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. So when you look up Rahab in the Hebrew, what it means is breath, storm, arrogance, mythical sea monster, and it's emblematic of Egypt. And it comes from the Hebrew root word that means bluster, proud, and strength. And so Rahab manifests in pride. And it was pride that hardened Pharaoh's heart. So why is Rahab connected to Egypt? And um, I want to read Exodus 7, verse 14 through 18, because this kind of helps us understand. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. 
Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Okay, so we see here that Pharaoh goes down to the waters of the Nile each morning. Well, why does he do that? You know, some commentators say that he was cooling himself off because in the morning, the the temperature of the Nile River would have been cooler. So he was just refreshing himself. And certainly that could be one layer of explanation. But I think more importantly, we see that he was actually consulting with the water gods. See, the Egyptians believed that the Nile was sacred. And so Pharaoh was going down to the banks of the Nile to seek power from the water gods. Just like, you know, when we spend time with the Lord in the morning to strengthen our day, Pharaoh was doing that. He was seeking um, the power from the water gods. Well, we see, you know, Pharaoh was filled with pride. Again, a manifestation of Rahab. He thought he could go up against the almighty Elohim. And then we see here in this passage, you know, the first of the 10 plagues was Yahweh confronting the gods of the water kingdom. Now, Kunim was originally considered a water god in Egypt, and he was thought to rule over the waters of the earth, including the rivers and the lakes of the underworld. And so he was associated with being the source of the Nile and creator of humans. He was known as the divine potter. So they they believed that he took the clay from the banks of the Nile and formed humans. And Kunim, he was, um, you know, the most popular of the ancient Egyptian gods until Ra, you know, came into prominence. But here we see, you know, the first wonder that was performed by Moses was directly confronting the gods of the water kingdom. Well, then when Yahweh parted the Red Sea, he dealt with the gods of the water kingdom as well. And we see this in Psalm 74, verse 13 and 14. It says, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. So, okay, back to the story of this ministry trip. So I'm on the flight over there and the Lord says to me that Lakeshore is a spiritual gate for Rahab into this major metropolitan city. Now, this major city has been ground zero for the bloodshed of millions of innocent lives in our nation. And so the Lord was showing me that that this Lakeshore community is the spiritual gate and the intercessors there needed to know that. Now, again, we often will see in the natural confirmation um, of what's going on in the spiritual So in this Lakeshore community, you know, there's streets that are named Mermaid Circle, Neptune Circle. There are businesses called um, the Mermaid Ceylon, and their moniker is We Believe in Mermaids. Well, mermaids are sexual water spirits that function underneath the, the, the gods of the water, so the principalities of the waters. Then you have other businesses called the Mindful Mermaid. That's a metaphysical store the Mermaid Bar, the Mermaid Raw Bar and and Champagne, and then also another business called Neptune Society. 
Well, where it became even more interesting is um, as I was doing research prior to going, the Lord led me to this one particular church. Now, this city has mega churches, and this one particular church boasts 57,000 members. And I watched just um, a brief clip of one of their services. And the associate pastor um, in the first few sentences of his message says, this is the greatest church in the world. That reeks of pride and arrogance. That's a manifestation of Rahab. Well, what I found out on this trip is I have a friend who lives in this major city that is a singer, songwriter, worshiper. And she was ministering at a women's conference years ago. And at this conference where women from all different churches, you know, in that metroplex, that, that area, well, one of the churches was this 57,000 member church. And so when she and her intercessor were ministering over the women that go to that church, her intercessor saw squid and octopus on each of the women's head releasing this black goo. And that was years before we got there. And so we knew that the Lord was showing us these things. So what we did is um, just waited on the Lord for the strategy for these intercessors. Because again, spiritual mapping is equipping intercessors to be able to go in and strike at the root of the issue. And the Lord showed us eight different strategies. And we just we surrender that to them, the local people, and say, pray into these. And if the Lord highlights specific strategies, then go for it, essentially. It's not like we're telling them what to do. We're just offering them. This is what we hear the Lord saying, but you pray into it. And so the first is to confess and repent. Um, Psalm 32, verse 5 through 7 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. So confession and repentance is a strategy um, to, to come against the water spirits. Also, fasting. Now, oftentimes water spirits are expelled only with fasting because fasting is this self-humbling and it's walking in the opposite spirit of pride and it empowers our spiritual warfare. Well, Matthew 17, it says, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and suffers severely for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, this was a water spirit that was torturing this boy. And one way we clue into this is because one of the ways it was trying to kill the boy was by drowning. And these water spirits, they empower their kingdom by bringing death and bloodshed to their waters. 
Now, the third strategy was, you know, we encouraged them to worship and extol the name of the Lord over the waters because, you know, water spirits hate praise because they're filled with pride. Then we told them, um, you know, decree the word of God over the waters, like literally put the word of God into the lake. Um, you know, we know from Isaiah 55, 11, that the Lord, the, God's word does not return to him void. And we know that water has memory. And so literally inserting the word of God into the lake was one of the strategies. Um, and then also asking God to break the head of the dragons in the water and to cut Rahab to pieces. And that goes back to the passage I read in Job 26, 12, just a moment ago. Then also to cleanse the water with salt. And that ties into 2 Kings 2. Um, the seventh strategy was to blow the shofar over the waters, which represents the voice of the Lord over the waters, which is Psalm 29, 3. And then finally to release a new song. And this is from Psalm 144, 7 through 10, which says, reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. From the hands of foreigners whose mouth are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful, I will sing a new song to you, my God, on the ten-string lyre. I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David. Okay, so that was the strategy. We had a wonderful, amazing time with them. We leave, or I leave, come back, and I'm still in contact with this lead intercessor. And I think that she is actually a gatekeeper for this city, Lakeshore. Her and her husband have lived there 32 years. She is a prophetic intercessor, fervent, persevering intercessor, but she's also a businesswoman and she's owned several businesses in this town. She has um, great influence with the mayor of the city. Um, her and her daughter just recently bought a. Um, historic site uh, in the downtown area, and they're going to refurbish it to bring more life back to the downtown area. So anyways, she's the one that brought me in. And after I left, she came under just tremendous attack. She caught a witch in her backyard, um, cursing her property. And then what happened is that she has a pool and covering her pool deck were these black water bugs, like thousands of them everywhere. And her pool guy came in to deal with it. And he said he has never seen anything like that. Then they had a leak in their pool, a leak in their porch that um, uh, damaged some of their home. Then her business, um, the brands that normally pay um, for her business stopped paying um, and then she had to do taxes and paid an enormous amount of taxes. So she has never lost so much money in such a short period of time. Well, I give, I commend her because so many people would have thrown in the towel and walked away and just said, Lord, get me out of this situation. But she did not. She kept persevering. And so she began fasting. She broke the curses off her property and, um, her business, they started paying, those brands started paying again. So there was turnaround in her business. She did have to pay a ton of money to get the pool and her home fixed. Um, but then she gathered the intercessors and they went to the lake and they had, they wrote scripture on 
rocks. They anointed the rocks. They repented, they worshiped, and then they prayed and threw the rocks into the lake, both on one side of the lake. And then they went to the town that's a significant town on the other side of the lake. And they did that. That same week, breakthrough came. And what the Lord began doing is exposing the sexual perversion that's in the land. Um, A business owner um, got exposed. He was having sex in his business and someone walked in on him and he's married. And so that got exposed. The mayor of the city began cleaning house in the city offices, meaning he fired the economic development director and five other department heads as long as well as a number of city employees. And this, um, this intercessor, um, she was texting me and she's like, Laura, I have never seen this many vacancies in our city um, offices in the 32 years I've lived here. Like the Lord is cleaning house The other thing that um, she just found out is Turtle Cove is imploding. It's going bankrupt. And so that that corruption and that fraud that was um, in that land, it's the Lord is uprooting it all. So she right now, she says we're in between the Lord is uprooting and tearing down and, and we're about to see the planting in the building. And so they're praying that in the planting in the building, the Lord's purposes, um, you know, come to pass. And they're in the midst of elections right now. And so they are praying that righteous leaders will come into and fill those vacant seats. So I wanted to share that because um, I feel like to some degree, um, well, that shows what spiritual mapping does. But also I'm wondering about... Um, the gatekeeping principles, um, Tim, that that you work with and just how there might be some overlap with that. One thing Laura mentioned that I want to just, you know, put a emphasis on is that when you're learning to do um, the spiritual warfare type stuff and walking in God's ways with these things, It's amazing when God says you can go do this and even the weather obeys, but it also is just because you can doesn't always mean you should. And that was one of the things that I I heard in what she said is that sometimes these things are connected to weather. Sometimes they were connected to a spirit. Sometimes God controls it and it's a judgment. And so being able to hear clearly and not just move in what we think our authority is, but to hear clearly each time to walk in God's ways is very important. I appreciate how you put that. Um, the other thing is when it comes to the whole idea of spiritual mapping, I think it's been done in the heavenly realms on a massively detailed uh, perspective with the blueprint of Father God, you know, that the idea of mapping now, we're trying to understand some things, and you you put it as clear as anyone I've ever heard, but I would enlarge it one more level, where we've got to sit in the heavenly realms enough to see what the original design was by Father God himself, you know. When he made this spot on the earth I'm looking at, what was his intentions? Most of the time, what we build or what we have done has been our own ideas superimposing on something that was once holy 
and uh, honoring to God, and we built something there for ourselves. You know, even if we got a word from God, for instance, and He told us to go build a church, we don't often ask Him what kind of church. What do you want? What, how do you want the worship to be done? Who do we need to involve with that? What are the relationships that are involved? We don't get the full blueprint. We generally get a word from God, and then we go do it the way we think it's right to do. And we superimpose that again on a design that might be different. You know? So what we believe is right in our own eyes is what we tend to, to do even when we're hearing God. You know, We often don't hear him in such detail that we get the original blueprint right. So this is why it's important to come along. And you're one of the first ones I've heard in quite a long time, at least since the 90s, that has, you know, verbalized the process of tearing down, rooting out, and destroying, you know, that we can't build and plant just to get revival and transformation. We have to tear down, root out, and destroy something first, you know. And so for the most part, Christians have been taught to do spiritual warfare, that that's what we think is the tearing down. And then we discover that I don't really have any grace or authority to get something out of the land until I get it out of me. So first principle of gatekeeping is whatever I allow in my heart, God may allow in the city. Now, because I'm trying to be righteous, I'm not going to blatantly go out and sin, hopefully. But if I do do some things, I'll maybe compromise and I'll do it with great restraint, you know. So maybe I just get mad at my friend and I don't like him anymore because he didn't do something I wanted or I didn't do something he wanted and and I start hating my brother. You know. I harbor that in my heart for a while, I chew on it, I I, I nurse that, I get offended with something that he does, and then I sin against him by ceasing to pray for him. You know. That combination opens the door to a city for murder. Because if I hate my brother, it's like the sin of murder. So when I've looked at cities that have high crime rates that involve uh, murder or innocent bloodshed, you could put abortion in that that, uh, category also. I find in the church always leaders are mad at each other, not working together cutting one another off, competitive, you know, not praying for one another. And then intercessors have come along and done this superfluous job to try to figure out how to unify and how to bring some of that back into order where we start praying together and start praying for one another again. And that has gained a lot of ground in many cities, but it usually stumbles along the way because someone takes the leadership and doesn't get out of their heart the things that God wants to transform. And every time a leader leader rises up and claims authority before they humble themselves to to claim, let me empty myself, let me be the the first one to repent, let me be the first one to take up the cause that is broken in my city, I, I... I see the the process then gets bottlenecked and usually doesn't move forward very well. And um, and it's very difficult for us to navigate this because the body of Christ has been taught to be under authority. 
and I agree with the principle of being under authority. But what was added to the idea of being under authority was a wrong religious idea that said Jesus left town and he's going to return one day, and until he does, I'm in charge. Now, there is some truth to God may give me a duty and want me to perform a function, and I have to be faithful in that grace. Okay? But what happens when we preach the authority and the positional authority is we require the body to be subject to our position, not subject to the functioning of our grace. And the functioning of my grace increases exponentially when I become Christ-like. It gets bottlenecked when I just try to do it with me. Now, why is that important? Because that is gatekeeping itself. We have to learn how to gatekeep our own heart before we get much idea of understanding how to steward over land. And yet we've got that backwards. Most of the body of Christ is trying to figure out how to steward over something that they want and need or like or participate in before they have learned how to govern their own heart. So we end up trying to build a city with a whole conglomeration of lots of people that know Jesus, but they're trying to do thousands of different things without being in one mind, one accord, without being in um, the perfect will of God, and without asking instructions of the one that made them. This is why we become subject to religious spirits instead of to God himself. If, if I can pause re- real quick re- right there, Tim, that religious spirit, would you say that's a substitute? Because I feel like we we put on so many things, we can do so much on a Sunday morning, and a lot of it might be good things, but it's almost like we have all these structures in place because we don't have what really counts, and we're bankrupt and we're empty on those things. Well, the the root of idolatry is doing something without God, you know? but substituting something for him. So I make an idol instead of the living God. And if I'm doing church without the presence of God, how is that any different from just bowing down to an idol? I mean, if I'm telling the city that Jesus is in the house and they come there and all they run into is me, how is that any different from me just setting up an Asherah pole? It's not, but we think it is because we put Jesus' name on it. That's the the religious spirit and the water spirits that Laura has brought out is absolutely, I think, the the number one strongholds of of North America. We're surrounded by waters. We have a major thoroughfare in the midst of the the, the nation. Uh, If you look at the Nile and you turn it upside down, it's the Mississippi River. They're twins. (laughs) They are twin rivers, and that's why we have Nile names on the Mississippi. You know, we're just literally, we've superimposed what was ancient on this land. Now, there's one other thing I want to say that relates to gatekeeping. One, I had to figure out this principle, and it it was extraordinarily um, heart-crushing to figure this out. Because I was taught in my youth, teenage years, to do spiritual warfare. 
and it worked with deliverance and it worked a lot with prayer and it was fun to go out and just kick a demon and tell it to get out but when it came to the territory we started running into bottlenecks well we sometimes would pray for something that we knew was there and it wouldn't leave and of course that's a lot of what spiritual mapping has sort of um tried to make a, a much more detailed understanding of why these things have to be dealt with and not just what to deal with but but why it sometimes has stayed when we thought we prayed you know when you take somebody like you just described that's absolutely incredibly serving God and doing their best to pray and seek his face and and do things that he that he tells them to do and then they get invaded their own yard gets invaded by a witch and the things you just described that's a boundaries violation yeah. before the witch cursed her land that person violated a boundary you know well then the normal response is, oh, I've got to go into overdrive and do spiritual warfare because the the demonic occult groups are attacking me. But first, when you seek God about that, first it's, I have to get something out of me. Yeah. Hmm. Because a curse without cause will not light. Yeah. So what's the cause? Well, experienced intercessors and people that have been doing this for a while and, and as you put it very well Laura that one that will persevere in these things will figure that out uh, as you continue to seek God and you don't bail on your assignment you don't you don't flee from the power of the enemy you say God help me and in the process of calling out for help he shows you what you need to deal with and it's the, we sort of preached for a long time the kick the demons part and then forgot the submit to God part. You know? So submit to God, then resist the devil. Tim, that, that reminds me of when God says he desires our obedience rather than sacrifice. So it seems like by and large, and I'm speaking for myself too, we put on religion and spiritual warfare because that's a lot easier than dealing with our hearts. Well, if someone, I had a pastor a while back that told me this, just use this as examples. Um, he told me that his house had been broken into five times, hmm. uh, lived in the city for 10 years, was broken into five times. <clears throat> Each time they would steal something, but not everything. And it was a little odd. It's like, why did they come in and they just took a ring or they just took, you know, a few items or they took some cash that I had. It just, you know, it was a different thing each time. So he wasn't sure it was the same person. Um, but he was like, man, there's, there's a thief loose in my territory. I need to deal with the thieves. Like, you know, so he'd met with the police and he'd met with, you know, um, people in the city. Like, we got to pray, figure out why the thieves are, breaking into lots of houses in the city, you know. And he found out that, well, it wasn't a lot of houses, but it was a certain area. You could sort of make a territorial line and say, here's a circle where all the homes being broken into are within this area, you know. It, it indicated that it might just be a small group of people or a single person that was doing all of this. That's what the police thought, you know. And then I threw him for a loop. I, I upset this gentleman. By simply asking him, well, is there any thievery in you? Because yeah. you're asking me to come and help you figure this out and pray and come and agree with you to cast the thief out of the neighborhood. What if you're the thief? Yeah. Wow. 
He said, well, I'm not a thief. I don't steal anything. I said, well, how'd you put together your sermon last Sunday? I knew already, just because he's a friend, I knew that he often copied his sermons from other known leaders. Well, that's fine if you want to reference a really good leader that's got some truth and there's no exclusivity on revelation. So if somebody figures something out for God and they share it, we need to share it again too. But if I don't credit who I got it from, is that not thieving? If I don't honor the person that taught me, is that not a thief at work? You know? And so I said, if you'll repent for that, then God would give you grace to deal with the thief in the neighborhood. This is gatekeeping. I have to take up the stewardship of the problem and first look for it in me. Now, with myself, um, I was very, very troubled in my 20s that abortion had grown nationally into uh, a major law. And I was like, Jesus, how is this possible in my lifetime? And it happened in a city near where I was born, you know, where it became the the law of the land. And the Lord said, well, if you want to deal with that problem, you've got to get that out of you. I'm like, I've never aborted a child. I've never had a child. What are you talking about? You know, he's like, oh, you did. You've aborted many. You know, I said, no, I haven't. Jesus, you always win these arguments, but, you know, you got to help me out with this because you're, you're indicting me for something that I do not know is in me. What have I done? He said, the first move of God that I gave you, you and seven of your friends in your high school led thousands of people to the Lord. And then you gave them away to churches that won't let me in the door. You gave your babies away. And when you gave your babies away, most of them were aborted. They are not serving me now. So I'm not going to give you any grace to pray for this cause until you repent for those that I gave you the stewardship of and you handed it over to a religious spirit that hates me and won't even let me in the door of my own house. Wow. Well, that sounded really, really harsh, you know, because I love Jesus so much and he doesn't talk to me that mean. Did Laura just get off? Yeah, she had she had to run, but keep going, Tim. Okay, see ya. Goodbye, Laura. I appreciate everything you said. I hope we can yes, do absolutely. this again. So absolutely. I, 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 I took this same premise. Well, I just dealt with a guy that had to repent for thievery. So now Jesus has given me a chance to apply that same principle to myself. And I had never dreamed that turning new converts over to churches was wrong. You know, it, it's not wrong in many cases because they need to go and join and become a part of a fellowship and get baptized. The process of that is the right thing to do, but not if I'm a father to somebody, then God wants me to father them. And then I hand them off to someone else who does not care for them the way God required me to. So the first thing that I had to understand before I could get any real insight on gatekeeping was the idea of stewarding over what God wants and being Mm -hmm. faithful at what he's assigned to me. And then in 
understanding my own boundaries. Okay, within this section of the earth, he's given me some grace and he wants me to apply it this way because he's given me this assignment. And here are my gifts and graces that are flowing out of me. That's the definition of how I know what I steward and how to steward over it. Because if he gives you a location or a boundary, he also will give you the equipping of his grace and giftings so that you can do what he needs you to do in that area. But then here was a question. In 1978, I went to God and said, man, we're having all kinds of amazing things go on at our high school. We've got 2,800 people saved in the last 18 months. I was like, Jesus, this is amazing. How come it's not happening in my church? Why is all the miracles I've seen this year happening at the high school? That's a secular environment. I pray for somebody at the church and I don't see them healed. I pray for them at the high school and you waylay them with your power. I said, I don't understand this. Now, I want to be very careful here because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not mad at the church. <laughs> I love God's house. You know, I'd lay down my life for it. But I would ask you to consider that a lot of things that we call God's are actually just ours. And we sometimes have put his name on something that's not legitimate. Now, I'm not saying that every church in town has to be judged that way. I don't know how to figure that out. God is the only one that can help us with this. But I just was asking a simple question. How come I'm seeing fruit here and not there? It looks to me like it should be the opposite, you know. And and Jesus simply answered my question. He said, because you're giving me the freedom to operate with what I want. In most churches, they're telling me what they want me to do and not letting me do what I want to do. You, know? you and your friends are giving me absolute freedom to do whatever I want to do in your school, and you're obeying when I ask you to. That's the difference. He says, it's not that I won't do miracles in the church. It's that they haven't repented for something that I require. You know? And now I took that premise and for the next 20 years, I started dealing with repentance just as a topic, talking about it much more everywhere I went to preach. Just, just not saying accusationally, but just saying, what have you guys repented for and what fruit did you see from it? And I found in America, we often are trying to figure out a technique to enlarge the church, but not uh, sometimes remind ourselves that periodically we got to get a spiritual checkup and repent for a few things. And the hardest thing for me to understand was repenting for things that I have not done, you know. Uh, what we call identificational repentance. That was a hard one to understand because I very much rightfully reasoned, well, I didn't do that sin, so why am I responsible for it? You know, um, I didn't break a covenant, so why do I need to deal with the Native Americans' covenants that were broken 150 years ago? You know, well, because God asked us to. You know, and God doesn't always accuse us of something wrong. He asks us to take up the cause of something he wants to fix very, very often. The body of Christ is supposed to be stewarding over righteousness. And that doesn't just mean righteousness for me. That means righteousness for my whole community. 
So when I see that righteousness is not reigning in my city, I should be an overdrive to help God fix that. Instead, we generally get involved with only things that affect us personally, and we don't get around to taking up the cause for the community. But when you see the design of God, you know, Jesus did this very thing. He didn't sit in the heavens crying over our sin. He took up the cause for his father and came down to fix it. You know? And he went the same route we did so he could unravel our mess. You know? He could have just, you know, forgave everybody on the face of the earth from the heavenly realms, but he did not violate his father's ways, you know, so he walked it out with great pain and suffering and crucifixion in order to to um, fix the problem the way God had prescribed it when he made it. He followed the blueprint. And so when I began looking at the idea of gatekeeping, I realized that I lived in a city at that time in Moore, Oklahoma, and there was no walls in that city. I thought it was odd to even consider what is gatekeeping because there's no walls. What gate are we keeping? You know, um, well, first of all, I, I got the lesson of learning to keep my own heart. You know, well, steward over your own heart right well. Don't let anything in that's wrong. You know, try to let righteousness out. Don't let wickedness in. And that certainly has to be modeled with a lot of repentance, a lot more than I ever thought I needed to repent for. Because I found by the time I was in my late 20s, I had repented for every known sin I had ever done. And then God started going after things that I had not done, but would have, if he hadn't got them out of my heart. And then he went after one more depth. He said, now that you're listening and obeying and doing your best to deal with yourself, now I can let you deal with the territory more. So here's a problem in your community that no one else understands and no one else is trying to fix. I'm going to give that to you to steward over. I want you to help me clean it up. And that was the beginning of my journey for a lot of what I do now. But I ended up dealing with a place where kids were molested in a church. 39 kids were molested in 1960. So the same year and month that I was born, an iniquity broke open in my city. And the Lord simply said to me a fascinating thing. He says, I brought you forth out of Fort Worth. That's where I was born. And I brought you to Oklahoma City. And now in Oklahoma City, I'm giving you an assignment to fix that became a problem the same year and month you were born. I created you for these types of things. You're going to get a first fruit of understanding how to unravel this kind of a problem, and then you'll apply it many places around the world. So the first idea is a, a church is a gatekeeper of righteousness. You know, even if they don't understand gatekeeping, we still have a stewardship to to preach the good news and to to try to um, help the community understand how to be right with God. If we allow wickedness in a church and it goes uncorrected, unrepented, 
it might multiply. So the first principle of gatekeeping is whatever I allow in my heart, God may allow in the city. Second principle, I would say, is everything reproduces after its own kind. So if I judge something by fruit, then I can simply look at a territory and see what kind of fruit is coming out. Is it good fruit? Is it bad fruit? Is it building people's lives? Is it destroying people's lives? What is the evidence from testimonies in that territory of of common things that are happening that are affecting people's lives. If I find that there's a consistent pattern of something that we consider bad, like lots of people have something stolen here, or lots of people get molested in this area, or lots of people, um, you know, end up suffering loss, financial loss, or or abandonment, or betrayal, or whatever. You, you could list out thousands of different things, but whatever becomes a common evidential, this is not just a single person that I met, but this is common in this area. Sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's good. If it's bad, like it's you know something that's damaging people, then I can take that cause to, to God and sit down with him and say, you know, t- speak to me as the judge and of the earth and sit down on your throne and tell me why this problem is in my territory. It's not my problem if I'm not the one doing what's wrong, but if it's within the boundaries that he sent me, I have a right to appeal. I have standing in the court of heaven to say, God, what is going on here in my neighborhood? You know, because if I don't, it will affect me. It will affect my household. It will affect the future of my house. That seems like a, a reconnaissance similar to what Dr. Laura was talking about, right? Where you're paying attention to what issues. It, it, it absolutely is. And and this is why to, to describe it as special forces, I use that same term sometimes. And the only difference between a special ops and a normal soldier is they are trained to see things others don't see. They're trained to respond to things. Uh, they may be in a spot where they can't get a message back to the Pentagon, so they got to make a decision on the ground. So they're sort of given a higher level of training and a higher level of technique uh, or tech available. So when they go in, they're strategically taking care of something. But they're also given authority while they're on the ground. They've got a lot of flexibility and to maneuver and adapt and to get in and out safely and uh, to accomplish the mission and still get out of there any way possible. They Their idea is not to cause collateral damage. So when they go in, they're just going to do their assignment and get back out. However, that's not the same as when I live somewhere and I have a boundary that God has set for my life, and I'm supposed to always be watching and praying. We have preached for my whole generation uh, a lot about prayer. We sort of forgot a lot to do much about watching. So lots of uh, Christians drive around their city every day, and they don't see things that they should see, but they're right in front of their face. They're not watching the same level they're praying. And also... um don't mean to say this negatively, but I, I had to make a major shift in my prayers because I was trained to pray what concerned me. 
You know, well, if I had a friend that was sick, I prayed for them. If I had something that went wrong, I prayed for it. If I was burdened about myself or somebody else, I prayed for it. And one day the Lord just stopped me and said, I'm glad you're doing a lot of praying, but I wish you would pray what I'm praying. And it was a correction that I needed because when I added up my my time during the day, I was spending a lot of time in prayer, but I was taking up the causes of things I thought was important because they were connected to me in some way personally. So I'm storming the heavens to fix a friend or to fix a situation that I know about. And then I was oblivious to what Jesus was praying at the same time. Well, that means I'm not watching him the same level that I'm watching over my friends. How how did he give you that discernment then to show, did he show you in in the word, you know, where you should be? Aligning yeah, your, he your said, thoughts. He said, seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. You know, And he said, you're doing a lot of prayers. I'm listening to your prayers. He said, I don't want you to stop praying, but I want you to seek my face more. You're watching over the things you care about, but you need to watch my face with the same level. You know, And hmm. so he said, when you, when you begin praying what I'm praying, you're going to see tremendous results, you know, and I'll still be concerned about things that bother you, but he simply said, I'm a king, and you're coming into my throne, and you're disrespecting the activity of my throne room. You're not listening to what I'm praying for and making it a priority, and he says, if you'll do that, I'll never let you leave my throne without me taking up your cause also. Tim, how how did that practically look for you to seek his face and to realign how you were praying to do his will? Uh, it was a um, complete transformation. Was, I mean, was it more listening? Was it worship? Was it well, meditating on the scriptures? It was, a, it was about eight months of a radical stop where I, I felt lost and out of touch because – all the stuff that I normally would just, you know, toss right there on the lap of Jesus, I, I was holding in my heart and and leaning in to hear what he was doing instead. And uh, it sort of put a pause on my normal prayer life, not because it wasn't important, but because I just stopped verbalizing things that I was concerned about until I got his heart first. And it was a radical shift for me because it, it forced me to go up and sit with God more instead of just tell him something that I was burdened about. And so I had to listen much more and, and talk a lot less. And uh, as I leaned on his breast and I started hearing what he was concerned, again, this is the kind of thing that came out. After a few months of that, he then began to express to me, I want you to deal with something in your city. And if he had not said that, I wouldn't have even, to this day, I would not even know about it. Wow. And where was this in the process of of you dealing again later on with these Canaanite altars all around the world? Was this in preparation for that as well? Yeah, because um, when we have something that allows iniquity to flourish in a city, it generally is 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 uh, associated with that kind of a pattern, the, the same. It's not always a Canaanite altar, but it's something iniquitous 
doesn't just happen like a one-off encounter. It's it's sitting on top of something that usually we've not dealt with correctly with the land. All right, so let me give you an example from Scripture. We have this, uh, right now, this major thing going on where it looks like a potential World War III is breaking out, and the center of it is happening in Israel and Gaza. Okay. If you just look at the news, you go, wow, you know, Hamas went crazy and killed a thousand people. And now Israel's going to retaliate and the whole, the whole city of Gaza is in real trouble right now. But let's go back and look at what scripture says about that area. You know, there's a story in scripture with this guy named Samson who gets involved with a lady in, in that city who's a Philistine. And he goes and sleeps with her. Um, some some texts say they married. Some texts say she's a prostitute. Uh, I think they considered if you had sex with somebody back then, then you were married. So I'm not sure what the actuality is. But while he's supposed to be walking out a Nazarite vow, and he's walking in the power of God, he goes against his parents' wishes. He goes against uh, his looks like his relationship with God, and he decides that he's going to make the decision on who he's going to marry, you know, and he ends up in this, in this, the house of Delilah. Now he's inside the gates of the Philistines, you know, and they understood a few things about Kevin, even though they had a lot of wicked things, that ancient people group did understand some things about covenants, you know, so when you were within their gates, they did not want to kill you in their gates because that b- brings innocent bloodshed on their home. You know? So they were plotting to try to figure out how to kill him, but they wanted him to get out of their gates before he kills them, or before they kill him. You know, and they get Delilah to help him out, and you know it goes through these different scenarios. It's kind of an elaborate story. They're trying to figure out what the secret of his strength is so that they can kill him. But they, it becomes known to him that they're waiting for him to leave the gates, and then they're going to, you know, attack him outside the city and bring him to an end. So what does he do? He uses the power of God, and he tears their gates off of the wall. Massive gate. He tears it off of its foundations, and he carries it about 20 miles north near the city of Hebron. And they couldn't kill him as long as he was within the gates. So he protected himself by moving their boundary about 20 miles north. That now is the boundary for the West Bank. Oh, wow. It's Samson's fault that all that land was given away after Israel had secured it. And currently, where they invaded when they came out of Gaza, they invaded up to that area all the villages that are claiming to be Jewish within those boundaries. That's where they attacked. That's where they shed innocent blood again. Now the innocent bloodshed, if you take the same rules, the Philistines understand within the gates, within their gates, they have shed innocent blood. That means they've lost the land. God is going to remove them from the land. Because if you shed innocent blood on God's land, he removes you from it. 
And so Hamas is in trouble because they've forfeited their right to steward over that land, whether they're righteous or not. I'm not trying to make that case. I think they're pretty wicked, but that's my opinion. Within that city, maybe they do some good things. I don't know. I've not heard those yet. However, just looking at it as a global problem, it's a spiritual problem that actually dates back centuries. Okay. Because an ancient boundary was moved and never put back. Now, about three or maybe four years ago, that gate was discovered by some archaeologists. They found it laying out in the middle of a field near the city of Hebron. And it's massive. It's like 60 foot high. You know, no no one single human being could have carried it 20 miles. The power of God moved it. And this is a mystery why God lets these things happen, even though they violate some principle that he might want us to then fix. It's it's sort of, even with your gifting and your your zeal for God, you might do something that violates God's ways. And God, it's a bit like, yeah, I yeah. was just going to say, it's, it's a bit like Solomon, isn't sure, it? Sure, God, lets, Paul, God Paul. lets you do it. It's hard to understand why he lets yeah. you do it, but it's because he so respects our right to make choices and our right, right. to have a, a free will. He doesn't violate that and turn us into puppets. He just wants us to learn how to walk in his ways. And until we do, we can really mess some things up. Well, that, hmm. saves, that saves Samson's life. But he violated the principle in Scripture, don't move an ancient boundary stone. He moved an ancient boundary. And by moving it, he forfeited the stewardship of that land to an enemy of God. All right, now later you see another story during Samuel's judgeship where Samuel is a prophet and he's judging Israel and he's making a circuit of four cities, uh, Gilgal, Ramah, um, uh, Bethel and, and he's in Shiloh, I think. He's just making a circuit and judging Israel, and the Philistines are attacking. And he takes a stone and he sets a boundary and names that stone Ebenezer, which means, Thus far, God has helped us. And he just inquires of the Lord with the setting of that stone and says, guard this spot. Don't let our enemies cross it. And the next verse says, and the Philistines were subdued, and they did not invade past that point anymore. Why? Because Samuel understood some way of setting back on the land a boundary that the wicked couldn't cross. Now, those two, you look at those two things. One's a gate that... Samson tears off the other is a stone that Samuel places on the land. One's a gate removed, the other is a gate established, you know, or a boundary yeah. established. And and God honors both of them, but we don't understand these principles very well. Now, I uh, I was searching these kinds of places out in the earth, believing that they're not just biblical uh, Israel land, that they, this principle probably is all over the globe. If we understand God's ways in one spot, it probably applies in another. So I started asking God way back in the early 90s, and uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, what are the boundaries of my city and where are the gates? And if there are gates... 
what are what am I supposed to understand about praying at those places? You know, and I discovered a fascinating thing that happened um, in the late '80s. I became a part of a citywide prayer group. And we were gaining a lot of success in trying to just bring a lot of the ministries and churches in the city into more prayer and more one accord. Uh, We had so many churches that it was a monumental task, but we gained a lot of ground throughout the 90s. And yet I still felt like we were falling really short of figuring out how to transform the whole community. And so I had a list of prayers that I had prayed that God had answered, and I had another list of prayers that I had often prayed and God had not answered. And I reminded myself of this word that he gave me to seek his face and to ask him how he's praying and to pray that. So I simply went back to him in in the mid-90s, and I said, I haven't done that very well. I know what you told me. I've tried, but I want to confess this. I, I, I'm i not sure if this is sin, but I think a lot of times I've still prayed prayers that I wanted you to hear instead of waiting for what you were saying. So here's my whole list of prayers that I've prayed that you've not answered. And I, I, had, a, I had about 22, 23 things on that list that I had prayed for more than 12 or 13 years and God had not answered. And I get a lot of answers to prayer. So this was troubling to me. Why hasn't God done these things? They are stuff that needs to be done, you know. And they weren't just personal things. They were things that I felt like God really was concerned about. So um, I said, God, I need to understand this. I have, I have I prayed amiss? Have I missed something? Are you going to answer these things that I just haven't seen it yet? Would you please talk to me about this topic? And he said to me, you just missed one small thing. Uh, you prayed the right prayers, but you prayed them in the wrong spot. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? He said, well, where's the two places you normally pray? I said, well, I'm either praying in my house, usually in my little office, or about my backyard, but always in my house. And, uh, and then I often pray at the sanctuary where I go to church. Sometimes I end up praying with a group of people, and that's different. But for the most part, 90% of my prayers are in those two places. He said, why don't you move to one of the spiritual gates of your city and pray those things that I've not answered and see what I do? So I went to a gate. Now, at that, by that time, I couldn't have done this 15 years earlier because I didn't know where the gates were. By that time, I had figured out where a few were. Um, along with others, and we were at least talking about this topic. So I went to one of those spiritual gates, which was right on the west side of Oklahoma City, uh, in a, actually in a little suburb called Bethany, and it is on historical Route 66, you know, a boundary point for my city, a historical highway coming in and out, and there's nothing spiritual right there. It's not a church. There's a coffee shop, though, so I figured that that was close enough to the gate to to be a good spot. <laughs> and uh, again, at first I thought that gates needed to be spiritual all the time, and I had also discovered that very often a gate is just a gate, and God honors it with his presence. It doesn't have to look like a church or a ministry. When it does, it's still it's a good thing. But if it doesn't, it still might be valid. So I went to this coffee shop, 
just sat down in there, got me a cup of coffee, and I prayed my list of things there, the same thing I had prayed hundreds of times from my home. And before the sunset, three of those things I marked off the list. They happened. They got answered. Yeah. So I went back to the Lord the next day, and I said, okay, um, you, you did something here. Clearly, you did it. It wasn't the complete thing, but you you answered enough to say, this is really important. What have I not understood? He said, well, you're praying in a gate. Yeah. And... I went back in the scriptures then with conversation with the Lord, and he said, I always sit in the gate when I'm the king. And that's where I make most of the judicial decisions. That's also where I hear the concerns of the people. If the people are murmuring and complaining or if they're if they're troubled by something, I hear it as they go in and out of the gate, and I make decisions on how to help them. So because you prayed there, it's not because I hear you there and won't hear you in your house. It's because it's that spot of your city where I make more decisions that affect the whole community. So I said, if you want to pray something about yourself or about your own family, I'll always hear you and I'll gladly answer those things when you're in your home. But when you're praying about your whole community, things that need to change in the entire city that only I can do, I would rather you come out and sit with me in the gate. And now, this sounds so simple, but it is a scriptural pattern. We're supposed to sit with the king in the gates. We've not understood that. So most ministries think sitting in their church is more important than sitting in the gate. And sometimes... Can I ask really quick? Yeah. So when, when you're referencing gates, can you give a little more detail on that? So if I was to just off the cuff think gate of my local town that I live in, I would think the roads that lead into the main part of the city. So I could, you know, the the main access points. Okay, this is where Laura's type work with mapping is really important because sometimes it helps to look back at the birthing of the city to at least figure out what was the main thoroughfares coming in and out. Those are usually more important than the ones we see today because sometimes we've enlarged that pattern just out of convenience and not every road coming in and out may be a gate. Similar to what you were talking about earlier, um, the, the, the trade routes right. going way back. So even. what caused the city to be birthed, what caused the commerce to begin to flow, those things often are where you find the gates easiest. Now, if you look at the ancient or the, the original pattern of a city, it's usually more clear just to look at, you know, the original blueprints or the plan or design and you can see what was there. That simplifies it down to a point where you can say usually what was there at the beginning is still here. But as the city grew and enlarged, and sometimes that became an interstate, sometimes that became a major thoroughfare, sometimes we changed the route of the river in places. So I've got to go back and look at the original design not because it's always right, but because it helps me see it better. You know, now, in Oklahoma City, we have a river on the south side of our city, and it used to meander around a little bit, and it 
it was a boundary point, but it, at one point it flooded in the early 20s. So the city decided to fix it so it would never flood again, so it would, would not adversely affect our downtown. And so they changed the course of the river slightly in order to assure that it wouldn't flood. When I looked at the original design, the way it meandered a little bit, it was more apparent where the gates were than just looking at it today. So I had to go back to Lord with both maps and say, which one is right? Is it the original design or is what we've got going on right now? And if it's the original design, then there's some things built in these spots that may have been gates. Those roads are not used anymore. We changed them, you know. So are those spots still important, you know? And uh, that took some figuring out. Um, we have one spot, for instance, that used to be uh, the the actual road kind of followed the river and then turned into town. And um, that's no longer there because we changed the course of the river. But at the end of that road, as it came into town, is now our convention center. I think there's a park there that I think is still the spiritual gate, you know. And now in scripture, there's two types of gates, maybe more. Somebody else might have some insight I don't have, but thus far, this is what I understand. One gate is horizontal, meaning that I come in and out. You know, it's, it's the way, the traditional understanding of a gate. It's just a door. I can have a door to my house. I can have a door to a city. It's where we, we come in and out. So the flow of traffic is in and out. It's horizontal. There's also a place in Scripture called Bethel that we know as Jacob's Ladder because Jacob dreamed a dream there, and it's a, a vertical gate. It's a place where angels are ascending and descending. So it's a spot that has a, some kind of perpetual design to be an open heaven. Yeah. A portal. Yeah, right? a portal is what a lot of people call it. I like that term. It simply means that God has decided to to mark a spot on the earth where the angels sort of go up and down at, you know. Is that what uh, Satan was talking about when he said, uh, I'm going up and down in the earth? I think so. I think yeah. that's probably the the spot, maybe the spot he was referencing. Another yeah. one like that is Mount Hermon. Right, which is also where we get the stories of the Nephilim descending on Mount Hermon. You know? Yes, and uh, that what I would describe as a spiritual portal. Also, um, okay. Now that those two things have to be understood, because I might have one gate that connects me with an open heaven easier than somewhere else nearby, and I have another gate that connects me with the commerce and the people and the flow of of everything, all the activity that's going on in the city now. God, when he comes to sit in the gate, he doesn't necessarily take up residence in one. He will sit in the one that most resonates with what he's going to do. You know, So if he's going to judge something, he might sit in that vertical gate. You know? right. If he's going to just bring something into the city that we're lacking, he might sit in one of the gates where it's common for people to go in and out. And so when when we are praying, we need to come into agreement with what he's doing first. You know? I think what's what's really instructive about all of this, Tim, um, is how God is both practical and spiritual. And, you know, Laura's talking about 
you know, go to your library and look up articles like, or if you're sick, go to a doctor. Right. But then also pray. So there's two sides to it. And I think that like the question that would come to mind is, okay, how do we discern from God uh, where are spiritual gates in the city? And if I'm going to answer my own question or maybe say what, what maybe I think you would say, you would pray and ask, yes, but then you could also do recon yourself. You could look at the problems your city has. You could look at the historical issues, right? Right. So when I looked at this church in 1990 that had a, a minister had molested 39 children, that was the charge. Uh, it never made it through a complete court proceeding. It went to court. Uh, looks like it never had a full police investigation. Um, it was sort of bought off and silenced. And the court proceeding, instead of putting somebody in jail that you know was blatantly guilty, um, it just sealed the case so that even the children were told they could never talk about it. You know? And uh, whatever it took to seal it up so that the city didn't know about it, that seemed to be the procedures of that court case. So what happens in that spot, and, and that was in a somewhat north-central location of the city, uh, when Jesus pointed it out to me, it was not a part of the town I was very familiar with. I mean, I knew where it was. I knew the address, but uh, I just didn't frequent that area of the city very much because I lived on the far south side at that time. And he said, I want you to take up this cause, you know, because this is defiling much of your city. And it's injustice also. You know, it's not just molestation, but it has injustice added to it. You know, now, I, I don't know if that's the right way to, you know, change the Webster's Dictionary, but my new definition of iniquity is when injustice gets added to uh, a blatant, you know, purposeful sin, it seems to set up this, what I call a pattern of iniquity, where it begins to reproduce, you know. And so that becomes like a magnet to occult groups, to other iniquity things, to people that are out of the will of God, that are purposely doing things wrong. It just seems, it's a mystery, but it seems to become a magnet on the land to attract other things that are not right. And so then if it goes unrepented for, after a while it becomes sort of, sort of a stronghold of iniquity. You know, So the churches in that area used to be plural, now this one church defiles the land, adds an injustice to it, forces it to not be able to even be talked about without violating a court order. So how do you repent? You know, if the if somebody that was a party to that case wanted to repent, they would be in contempt of court. You know? And so Jesus said this to me. He said, I want you to take this up, and you're not going to understand the fullness of the problem until you get deep into it. Just to, just obey all the details I give you. But first it was go pray over the land. So I went and I sat in that parking lot and just sought his face. You know, what are you praying? You know, 
and I felt a grief and a I was overwhelmed with a wail like I was wailing deep within my spirit for something I didn't even know what was wrong you know at that time I did not know kids had been molested there I only knew something's wrong with this spot you know it looks like a church it's no longer a church it's a building that looks sort of like a castle but I knew it used to be a church and now it's a nightclub and I'm sitting in the parking lot and this wailing hits me and I don't even know why I'm wailing. You know, I knew something was wrong because how does a church become a nightclub? You know, something doesn't seem right about that. Um, but while I'm just sitting in the, pay- in the parking lot, all I'm doing is seeking his face. I'm asking him, tell me what you're praying. You know, let me pray what you're praying. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I began to hear screams of children crying out for help. I thought they were real screams. I got out of my car thinking I was hearing something from inside the building that was happening right then. And all I was doing was tapping into what Jesus knew. And at that point, at that point, it was obvious the building itself was empty. There was no one in it at that time. Uh, there is sometimes, but not at the time of day I was there. And there was no children crying inside the building. What I was hearing had already happened. You know, it it was the molestation of 39 children. You know. And so I was hearing their trauma and their rape and their molestation and their cries for help and no one answered. You know. And I witnessed Jesus seeing it and hearing it and calling out for somebody in the city to respond, and no one heard, and no one came. And no one in the church was sensitive at that time enough to rescue a child. Now, I'm not saying that is an indictment. probably happens all the time, and even the very best people that hear God clearly, we might miss these things sometimes. So I'm not trying to say this is an indicting thing, but but where was where were the intercessors? Where were the people that have spiritual gifts? You know, we're exercising them often for something we are interested in and not for something that's going on in our neighborhood that we don't know about unless God helps us. And so I realized I'm I'm in the spirit. I'm not hearing a real cry from the building. I'm in the spirit. And I'm just like, Jesus, what is this? And he simply said to me, um, this is no longer a church because children were molested and raped here. And it's a cover-up now. Okay, so what do you want me to do about it? I Now I can't get away from it. That burden fell upon me. I couldn't stop crying for days. This is what happens to intercessors. Is and, and I don't claim to just be an intercessor, but uh, it's a noble task. But when when God puts something like that on someone that really will pray, we've got to pay attention to them. 
You know, do do you think Jeremiah had that too? In addition to the, Absolute, the prophecies, that absolutely, he had? Yeah. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why he was called the weeping prophet. I think. Now, I simply stepped back into my car, and I looked at this building, and I just, I was like, Jesus, I, I don't know anything about this church. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what you just showed me. Like, who am I? What am I going to do about this? And it's not a church that I'm affiliated with in any way. And he said, this land belongs to me. It was a gift to me from someone righteous. Then someone that was supposed to be righteous, who wore the cloths of righteousness, defiled it. Now I can't even bring my presence here because the land is defiled. So he's like, I'm just asking you to help me clean it up. At that point, I was so overwhelmed. I said, whatever it takes, Jesus, you just tell me what you need me to do. I'll do whatever it takes. You know. So um, I didn't have any more instructions. I went home weeping. I wept for a few days. And then uh, um, I think it was the third day uh, I had a dream. And in the dream, Jesus was sitting in the gate. I didn't know which gate, but he was sitting in the gate of my city. And he said, here's the keys to unlock what you need to do so that my kingdom can come to my land. You know, and again, he referenced this spot was his, you know, and, you know, most churches are built because somebody makes a gift of the land. Usually they don't go out and buy land. Most of the churches in our cities were built because someone made a gift to the king. And, Jesus was actually, if I could say this nicely, he was actually pretty pissed that someone had defiled a gift that had been given to him. And he didn't, it it was troubling when he told me when it happened, when he said very clearly, this happened the year you were born. Well, this is 30 years later. I'm dealing with something that's been wrong, been messed up for 30 years, you know. Where are the righteous, you know? How does a church become a nightclub for 30 years? And we do nothing about it. We drive right by it and just think, oh, that's sad. I wonder why that happened. And don't even think that something wrong might be going on there. Um, anyway, I, I don't, that's a different story, but I took that back into, just instruction mode. Okay, give me my instructions. Tell me what to do. Uh, just because I have keys doesn't mean anything. How do? Where do I put the key? You know. And um, this is what he actually did with Peter. I think he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom, and Peter had to figure out what they were and how to use them. You know, learning to walk in this is not easy, and God doesn't always give you the manual right at the beginning. It's right there in the Word of God, but we don't always understand which part to look at. Um, but I simply took the keys and I went into prayer mode. Tell me what you're praying. Tell me who I need to talk to. You know, give me my instructions. And he told me to contact the denomination that had been in charge of this building and had sold it off. And he was indicting them in the gate to come and appear before him and repent for this. 
I didn't know how I was going to say that to them, but that sounded pretty mean, you know. And uh, those terms, I'm I'm sitting as a judge in the gate, and I'm sending an indictment out. He used the word warrant. He said, go tell them that they must appear before me. Now, I didn't know at first if that meant they needed to come over back to the gate or if they just needed to, you know, sit down and pray. But I was figuring out some things along the way. Um, And then I said, well, what if they, just like Moses, I said, well, what if they don't listen to me? They don't know me. They're not under my authority. I'm not connected with that denomination in any way. Why, why do you think they'll listen to me? You know? And Jesus said, because I'm sending you. And I'll make it evidential that I'm sending it. You had to be like a Jeremiah or a Jonah. So he said, you got, you need to go tell them this. And he said, if they don't repent, and at first they won't, because he said they won't at first because they'll claim that it's under a gag order you know, and that they can't even talk to you about it. He said, you answer them with this, that I'm the king of kings and I'm ordering you to take up the cause that's a burden to my heart. So basically, it's an override of the natural court's gag order. You're going to deal with this whether you want to or not. That was the tone of his voice. And, And then he added, if they don't repent, I will shut down their denomination and they will cease to exist. You know? I will do to all of their churches what they've done to this gift of mine. You know, and that was one of the most severe judgment statements I'd ever heard from God in prayer. You know, I didn't even want to go out and say that because I was like, Jesus, if I'm wrong, if I'm misinterpreting that, if, if that's coming out of any part of me, you know, if, if I'm grieved because I heard the kids crying, like, and again, this is why whatever I allow in my heart, God allows in the city. We've got to deal with our heart because I have to know that I'm not speaking out of my own voice, but I'm only saying what he's saying and I'm only doing what he's doing. And it's difficult to separate our own emotions or our own history uh, from things that are troubling like this, you know. And so you become mature by learning how to do that. Nobody starts out knowing how to do it right. And along the way, God just helps us. Um, I'm amazed that God uses broken people for profound things. You know, And then in the end, if you carry it out right, you don't end up broken. You end up healed too. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I went and sure enough, they didn't listen to me. You know, They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to even talk to me about the topic. And and then I told them that I heard the voice and the cries of 39 children. And they said, how do you know that? I was like, well, because Jesus is still crying over it. Yeah. And they knew at that moment that I had heard from God because no one in the public knew that, that number. Yeah. It was. It had been sealed since it had happened. No one had talked about this for thirty years, you know. And so I, um, I at least got their attention. They weren't. They weren't totally stiff-necked or prideful. They just didn't want to handle it because it was a gag order. But then they threw out something I didn't have an answer for. They said, "Timothy, we didn't do that." <laughs> 
you know. Someone in the previous administration did, you know. All of us have only been in these particular leadership roles for about five to six years. So we we weren't even in leadership back when that happened, you know. Why do we need to repent for it? I didn't have an answer for that, you know. I do now, but back then I didn't know. What's the answer now? The answer now is we do whatever we see our king do. Mm-hmm. You know, I take up the cause of righteousness, not because I'm guilty, but because I'm going to stand in the gap with the king. Mm-hmm. And this is identificational repentance. That you may not have done it, but you, you have a stewardship now that you must exercise properly because you're in the spot that has a problem. Yeah. And and that's similar on the on the flip side, right? Where you can uh yeah, you can repent on behalf. Right. So yeah, we can take up we can take up the cause of anything going on yeah. in the world yeah. as a way to identify with those that are broken or those that have been, you know, downtrodden or, or been stolen from or whatever. But I have to know that God is asking me to do that because I, I don't want to just be, pick up someone else's burden and not have any grapes, you know. So this is why it's important to be walking in God's ways and, and letting him direct your steps, because if he leads you to take up a cause, it's it's because he needs you. Even if you're not guilty of that problem, that there's a reason why he's asking you to help. Um, but it is a hard thing to discuss with leaders who who don't have any guilt or don't have any personal connection to a problem that happened a long time ago. And we have a society that just likes to let water under the bridge run and, and go on down the road and pretend it didn't happen. And one of the problems in the body of Christ and in America is when we don't deal with sin and it gets a little bit of time down the road, we think it's better to just forget it and go on. Yeah. And often we tell somebody broken, well, just get over it. Yeah. And they can't because they haven't been healed. Yeah. Uh, we tell the kid that's crying, suck it up, be a man, quit crying when the, he needs comfort. You know, And then he'll stop crying. And then he, he'll become stronger, you know. But uh, to people that have been traumatized, this is immobilizing to say, well, why are you still, you know, how long did that, well, that's so far back there, just get over it. You know, why are you still carrying that around? Because somebody's not taken up their cause. And usually I'm finding that when people can't get over something, it's because there's an injustice added to it also. And now, uh, anyway, last make long story short, um, I, uh, I I didn't really have an answer to them, but they agreed to meet again, you know, which was a breakthrough because it went from we don't want to talk to you at all about it to okay, why don't you come back and you know we'll discuss it with our board and our attorneys and we'll see if there's a way that we can pray this out. They they made an effort to try to do the right thing, but they still felt very limited uh, legally, 
And uh, this is the trap that injustice does, is it puts us in a position where you can't deal with something without violating a court order. That's injustice at the extreme, you know. And then, uh, I mean, we got it. we're looking at this right now. We've got a president running for office again, and he's under a gag order, you know. A gag order is not with the intention of silencing him. A gag order is with the intention of hoping, I think, hoping he violates it so they can then put him in jail for that. You know, And the, if that's just, it's a good thing. But if that's imposed upon somebody that was a victim, there's no healing. There's no recourse for them. You know? So... 39 children were told you can't ever talk about this or you'll go, you'll be taken away from your parents and you'll go to jail. Children, you know, how do they ever heal? They couldn't even, they, they were, they basically were left with, you can't even go talk to a counselor about this, you know, and well, that drives that sin in deep into their hearts. It becomes an open wound that they got to figure out how to cope with for the rest of their life. And they can't talk about it in a way that brings healing. What does that turn them into? Now the, the next thing the Lord said to me was astounding. He said, I want you to go look in the court records and see who owns the building today. He could have just told me, but he made me do some work and I had to go to the courthouse and do some search on that 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 address, and I found who the current owner was. And the Lord said, go to him and ask him to repent. You know? <laughs> I said, well, what did he do? He just bought a building. You know, Why does he need to repent for this? And the Lord said, because he owns an iniquity. He said, you go tell them that he's in trouble with me, and you're, you're here to help him. You know? <laughs> well, I went to him and said those very words. He was an attorney. He had bought the building. Uh, he just he was the one that turned it into a nightclub. And I said to him, "You're in big trouble with Jesus, and I'm here to help." You know, he said, "Well, I don't want to be in trouble with God. How am I in trouble?" And I said, "You own an iniquity, and you're making it worse. And it's a it's a was a, originally a gift to God. He wants you to steward over it righteously. So right now you're in big trouble with Him." Yeah. And he's like, well, I don't want to be in trouble with God, but I don't understand spiritual things. I'm not even a Christian. So what are you talking about? So I described to him what happened. He said, how do you know that? I said, God told me. He said, God told you that 39 kids were molested? Yes. In that building? Yes. Uh, And now because I own it, I'm responsible for that in some way? I said, because it's an iniquity on the land. And you're stewarding over it now without any help from God. You're in trouble. You're just get, you're making it worse. You know? And I said, God's not mad at you. He he's concerned about this iniquity. But if you don't let him help you right now, you're going to be in bigger trouble. You know? So he reached into his pocket, pulled out the keys to the building, and handed physically handed them to me, you know? and said, "Here, go fix whatever God wants fixed. I don't know how to do this." You know. Tim, isn't that interesting that an individual that is an unbeliever was more 
willing to fix this situation than the church leaders. Uh, that that baffled me too, and that's exactly what I when I went back to Jesus with those very words that you just said. I I was astounded by this. I said, Jesus, a a, a, wick, a man that's got somewhat of a not the best reputation in town for doing business righteously. He's willing to repent before your your pastoral leaders are. I said, I don't get this, you know, and um, that baffled me. But I just took it as well. We're gaining ground, so I continued to walk it out. Um, but his his willingness to change was astounding, and this is actually where I think transformation, like Laura was talking about, we begin to see the city transform when we have accurately mapped something out and begin to deal with it the way God wants. He causes the turning of the hearts to happen in that process. So this is what transformation looks like. Um, this man not only gave me the keys, but he said, what do we need to do? He, he left it with my helps and help me know what God wants because I don't hear him the way you do. So what do we need to do to fix this problem? That sounds like the in the Bible, you know, what must I do to be saved? You exactly. Know, just it's, crying out. It's also yeah. what what uh, the king of Babylon said to Nehemiah, like, what what do you need? What do you request? You if know? I can speculate real quick, Tim, it, it almost seems like to me, in my opinion, that this wicked person saw the supernatural sign of God at work in in what he revealed to you and said, I don't want to be at odds with God. I believe your story. And here is the church, and I'm not saying that this church is like, you know, cessationists or anything, but we have an unbelieving problem in the church, don't we, when it comes to supernatural? I just wonder if sometimes unbelievers are more ready to believe the supernatural than Christians. I I think that's a big problem. Again, that's the religious spirit, too, that has taken the power of God out of our belief and we just become doctrinally sound on something and then really off on yeah. something else. We don't know the difference. Um, this church, particular denomination, it had a lot of good things you could say about it. I mean, they had some really good churches. So why they did this with this one, I, I don't really know. It's still a bit of a mystery. I mm-hmm. think it's self-protectionism that, that many of the churches today that have these kinds of things happen, they're so scared of just having a massive lawsuit that they can't recover from, that it's easier to try to cover it up while they believe that they're going to be fixing it, you know, and then they never fix it, you know. So the cover-up often becomes not the full intention that they had, but the only way they think they, and maybe the advice of their attorneys, that this is the only way you're going to not cease to exist. Yeah. Now, my premise is, if this kind of thing getting exposed causes you to cease to exist, maybe that's what God wants to happen. Well, it makes me think of, you know, I don't want to get on my soapbox here, but a lot of things we've added to the church are never meant to be. You know, the the decentralized church of the early centuries thrived under persecution, and we've made it into such a human institution that now we've tied our hands with 501c3 laws, right, and all these stipulations. And it's meant to be, you know, a gathering of believers that can nimbly move through any culture. So, but why don't you go ahead and just put a bit, uh, yeah, go ahead and, I don't want to rush you, but put a bookend to to kind of how this story ends, because this is, this is fascinating right, so, and very instructive. 
this gentleman um, said, you know, you're hearing God like you tell me what we need to do. So, and, you know, he said, he said, my motive in buying this building is I just wanted to make money. You know, uh, I, I'm willing to do whatever God wants, but, you know, can I still make a profit out of this? Because that was his intention in buying it. And I was like, God doesn't have a problem with you making a profit. He has a problem with you doing something wicked or contrary to his will, but I can pray for you to have a blessing and I think God will answer that, you know? And so he said, okay, Lord, let's do it. So then I said, well, what do we got to do? I just simply told him, I said, it troubles me that a church became a nightclub. Like what is up with that? You know? (laughs) And uh, he's like, well, you know, I I make more money from the nightclub than I would have made if I'd turned it over to another preacher. So he goes, I just want to own the building and make profit out of it. So, um, he said, he just looked at me, he said, are you saying the nightclub shouldn't be there? I was like, yeah, it's not really something Jesus wants in his sanctuary. You know? So it might be a good idea to figure out how to separate those two things. I said, if you want to put a nightclub in one of your other buildings, move them there, but let's get them out of the sanctuary. You know? And, um, he said, all right. So he just turned around and started typing and I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I'm typing out a vaca- vacating of that lease. I'm going to cancel their lease. And he said, we got to give them 30 days because they're on month to month. So I can't just throw them out, but got to give them enough time to move. And he said, I got a couple of options I could move them to if they want to do that. And then I'm he's still amazed at his obedience. Yeah. And then he turns around. He's like, you know, <laughs> do you have time to take this out there to them? Because they have, to, it has to be delivered so that you document when it's delivered to them. And then, uh, from the time they gets in their hand, they've got 30 days to, to transition out of there. I said, I'd be happy to do that, you know? So he's like, what do you want to do about the, the group that's in the basement? I go, who's in the basement? I don't know anything about what's going on in the building. You're the one that owns it. He said, oh, there's another group that leases the basement from me. I was like, well, what is, what's going on down there? He said, I don't really know. Uh, it's a bunch of women. They dress up in these black robes. They do this crazy stuff. I don't know what they do down there, but he said, they uh, they pay me really well, but uh, they probably need to be, you know, thrown out too because their, their lease is separate from the other guys, you know. And I just went, a group of ladies dressing up in black, like, what are, are they Are they witches? <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. They drew some kind of big star on the floor, and they dance oh around, gosh. do this crazy stuff. He goes, I don't understand all that. They're, they're, but they pay me, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> This guy sounds like a gatekeeper here. Maybe. Uh, I, so <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, that'd probably be a good idea to ask them to leave too. So he types out cancellation for them also and i got to deliver a notice to the witches they were an actual witch coven i got to deliver a notice to them to vacate the building and i asked them to repent the leader of that group said to me um she named the date that i was sitting in the parking lot in my car even though they weren't there at that time and she said, we knew something was up because on that day, we lost our power. You know? And I said, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? She said, we lost our power. She said, we gained power from this spot because of the trauma that happened to all those kids. Yeah. And the day 
We don't know what happened that day, but that day we couldn't do our rituals. We lost our power. Well, that's the day that one single person, me, not because I'm so powerful in the spirit, but because I came into agreement with what was Jesus was praying. One voice on the earth with our God in heaven coming into agreement was enough to shut down their power. Luke, we just saw that with, with Tim with Bill Schneblin, didn't we? That same thing. He lost yeah, his I didn't, power. I didn't yeah. I didn't pray against but, them. I didn't yeah. even know they were there. But just Tim, do you think do you think the day was when you went to the gate and you were listening? And then you heard the cries, and then you had the tears. So that's that's a sign of of you connecting with intercession right. of the heart of the it's Lord. It's coming into agreement with what Jesus is praying. And it was probably on that revelation day, the day you had that revelation, that right. the power was well, broken. Well, here's the problem. Jesus is simply crying over it. I started crying too. He says, here's the problem. I said, let's fix it. You know, And he makes a judgment. In the gate, you know, that's what removes the power of the enemy. Mm -hmm. It's not when I speak and rail against them. It's when I come into agreement with God, you know. Which is what the Lord's Prayer is. Exactly. And this is why submit to God. What's in heaven, you brought it to earth. That's right. This is why submit to God is so important, not just, you know, getting the devil to flee from us because I think I have authority. Yeah, you know, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about this and just tying it to uh, the preparation. I mean, your life story, Tim, is a preparation of the heart leading to these amazing exploits, you know, at Jekyll Island that inspired me and Luke and Dr. Laura. But you go back and watch the trail of obedience that you went through, and it's instructive. And I think about... You know, the the defilement that's happened in, in deep underground military bases and right on top of church altars, you know, we, we're going to be releasing uh, uh, episodes with uh, Jesse Zaboder talking about, you know, Rockford, Illinois and churches and, and Chicago and all the, the hub of Satanism that's there. The soulish part of me wants to, you know, rush forward and say, all right, let's take these down. And it's done in a humble spirit of obedience. It's not done out of, of yeah, out of religion. Well, you know, I, I'm convinced that the activity of securing a place spiritually uh, does require these two elements. Laura's made a real, very accurate, detailed spiritual case for the understanding why spiritual mapping is important. Yeah. It's not the process of mapping that changes anything. It's understanding the land. It's figuring out how God views where I live. And then our response to that can become transformation. You know, if we don't, if we want transformation, we can pray until we're blue in the face and not see it. But when we touch the things that God knows and understands, then we start seeing things unravel. And that's why it takes a combination of this where my heart has to come into agreement with God. And I also have to see the problem that maybe has been right in front of my face my whole life. And I didn't know it was there. I just drove right past it every day. Um, in this one, in this main thing, the thing that I want to bring out that 
was profound is the idea that God orders our steps. You know, right. Uh, one of the hallmarks of my life is testimonial. When I say, here's what I did, little acts of obedience, I can only share it from my perspective of what I actually did. But the hallmark of my journey has been letting God order my steps and, and learning better and better year after year how to let him do that. Um, because it's one thing to say, I went out and did something righteous. It's another to say, I didn't know what to do. And God just took me by the hand and we went on a journey and here's what happened. You know, that's more of my testimony. You know? Yeah. I, um, I don't ever feel like I know what I'm doing, except I know the one that does. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Yeah. Um, any other final details to that story? I didn't mean to cut you off earlier, but. Yeah, when when uh when those two vacated the place and we just had a, an empty building, I then went and got a group of intercessors and we went into the building, washed it, cleansed it, uh, scrubbed it down, uh, removed the pentagram, uh, painted a few things just to help the owner have a little better place, took out dead stuff in the yard, planted some new bushes and trees, and we gave it back to Jesus the same way I believe it was presented originally by somebody that loved him and called for him to come and stand on his land again as the king of kings. And that day, when the building is empty and it's now cleansed and we've repented on the spot for the iniquity, the, the gentleman that did it was still not in jail. The case was still not opened, but the stewardship of the land had gone back to the king. You know, that day the Lord released a profound new level of revelation where he said, this is actually a gate to your city. I want you to understand something else that's hidden. It's not related to this case at all, except that it's a, uh, related as a gate, you know. Hmm. Now, that spot is on Classen Boulevard near nor just north of Northeast 23rd Street in present-day Oklahoma City. Our downtown district would be Main Street, so 23 blocks north of Main Street downtown on Classen Boulevard, which is a main north and south street that runs uh, alongside the west side of our downtown district. Um, in the early days of our city, about 4,000 Chinese helped build the railroad into town where our city was birthed, and then they were not allowed to participate in the land run that created our city. Oh. They were turned out. They were supposed to be given tickets back to China. The railroad company defrauded them, uh, gave them their last paycheck and didn't give them their ticket back home and then left them homeless and without any means of support. And many of them couldn't speak English. And then they weren't allowed to, to claim land because they had worked for the railroad, which was considered a federally funded entity, so they weren't allowed to claim land like all the other settlers coming in did. So they carved out a living underneath the city and built a tunnel from our present downtown all the way out to 23rd and class. The entrance was near our downtown convention center, and the exit was uh, just a block from this church. And uh, I knew about the Chinese history. I didn't know the full story of the underground tunnels. Um, they literally had 
supposedly four to 5,000 Chinese living underneath our city in the first 20 years of its existence. And um, when I simply said, why do I need to know that, Jesus, if that's separate from this issue? He said, because it's a spiritual gate. He said, I want you to pray on the gate because I want to help the Chinese. I want to help those that know me, especially. And uh, I... I just, it was like an addendum, you know, like Jesus said, here's a little, you know, rider onto this thing we're doing. Right yes. And it just sounded like, okay, that's cool. I'll do that, you know. And I didn't realize it was just as big as the other thing, you know. Well, and it's a broken covenant, as, as <laughs> exactly. Laura mentioned. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, this is what spiritual mapping looks like, is why I'm yeah. mentioning this, that without that little word from the Lord, I wouldn't have known to then go look for the details of that. And then when I mapped that out and understood, found the articles, found some of the stuff, did what Laura does better than I do, um, I found out enough info to say, Jesus, this seems as big or bigger than the little building you got me dealing with. And it's like it is because it it affects the way the city has grown. The, The heart of the city is wrong. So he said what this is is a violation of my word that says, be kind to the strangers when they're coming through, mm-hmm. you know, be hospitable to them. And if you're not, it's a, it's a reflection of a wicked heart, you know? So if my people don't make room for them, it doesn't mean they're supposed to live here. Uh, the, the kindest thing that my city could have done for them at that time would have probably been to take up an offering for them and help them get back home. You know, yeah. instead we forced a lot of those families to relocate perpetually. You know, and and Tim, you've mentioned how much of a Native American influence you have around your area, right. and I just think of the atrocities and the broken covenants that we've done with our Native peoples in this country. Yeah. So can I can I sort of polish this off with one yeah, really important thing? It. I'd like people to to. Go back to the word and look at this. Um, yeah. And if we do another follow up, I'd like to, you know, make this a topic too. Yes. Um, in scripture, we have some very clear scriptural rules for inheritance and for how land is supposed to be stewarded. The first premise of it is God owns the earth and the fullness thereof. So we never actually get ownership of land if you understand the scriptures. We only are allowed to steward over something that God retains the ownership of, which is also even a greater obligation to make sure you do with that stewardship what would be in the original blueprint of what God wants. Mm -hmm. If I don't do that, then I'm being a bad steward. In most of the Christians that I know, their only understanding of inheritance is assets that they have gotten from a mother and father, an uncle or relative. And we don't understand inheritance as a gift from God to mark out a spot on the earth that resonates with us. So where we call home is usually something that we decided we wanted instead of something that God said, here's where I want you. In scripture, this is really, really important. Abraham goes on his covenant journey to discover his inheritance and how to be in covenant with God, you know, and he becomes the father of nations. And yet we've not followed these rules very well. 
And when we start talking about transformation, we cannot leave this piece out because God will transform a city first by bringing us back into righteousness, but then we continue to walk out the pattern of his blueprint will have to come into an understanding of inheritance. So here's my premise. If I do everything right and I'm righteous in my heart and in all of my dealings, I might see the glory of God transform my city, and then God will ask me to give it to the right steward if it doesn't belong to me. If I decided that this is where I want to live, but not where God wants me to live. If I bought the home without inquiring of him. So one of the things that I see in Scripture, we, we mentioned this about Jesus turning the tables over, but three times in the New Testament, Jesus himself accused the Pharisees of robbing widows of their houses. And then he turns tables over later. It's probably related. How do you rob a widow of her house? You steal her inheritance. You You take her stuff because the the steward died, the one that her is, you know, her, her husband dies. So she's left vulnerable. Um, in most cities right now, I think we have a huge real estate problem because, and, and Laura just described just one example of that when she was mentioning this Turtle Island thing, those kinds of things I'm finding over and over and over again aren't just because some wicked guy decides to do something corrupt with a new thing. It's because somewhere on the land, something like I just described with this church has not stewarded it well. Wow. And so we end up with, if there's an iniquity on the land and it's not repented, whoever takes the ownership of the stewardship of that probably is going to become just as corrupt or more even if they don't intend to be. They'll do something wrong because the iniquity gets into them if they're not willing to repent for it. And then I think we all got to look at our own uh, assets, where I own a home, where I placed a church, where I put my business. If we did inquire of the Lord about that, and if we don't consider him the owner of it, that at some point he's going to shake us and test us on whether it's really his or not. Yeah, yeah and we need to inquire what, what has happened in the past, right? Right. So That's if affecting I, it, us. I could buy a house and be righteous in my heart, but what if someone else murdered somebody there? Right. And I didn't know that. Then I purchased something that's out of compliance with God, and he knows something I don't know. We had Bill Schneblin on the show recently, uh, uh, Tim, and he said that, I think this was his story, could be wrong, but he said that there was uh, a discernment he was given in like a bedroom or something where he saw the walls covered in blood and he was told, God told him that it was because people took his name, God's name in vain there. And that was like throwing blood all over the walls. So who knows what we deal with in our homes that we buy off of a family that lived there for 40 years. Well, a lot of people um, just, again, it's the same problem as what I described about prayer. 
we pray what we want to pray. We tell God what we want him to do. And he still answers that a lot because he loves us. But then we do the same thing a lot of times with assets. We buy what we want, where we want, and then we want God to bless it. And I might be asking him to bless someone else's inheritance. You know? Wow. And now here's the premise in Scripture, and I'll, I'll close with this because this okay. is a topic we ought to explore more detail yes. later. But um, in Scripture, when Jesus told Abraham to get up and follow him and go where he was going to take him, he doesn't really give him too much understanding of where they're going to go. It's just a journey of hearing God and paying attention and coming into relationship with God, which results in covenant and then the receiving of an inheritance. Okay. But he's not allowed to just go choose a spot that he wants to live. You know, he's got to find that place on the earth that God was giving to him, you know? and that is something every believer has the right to inquire of the Lord about. We often have made it our choice instead of saying, "God, you've already decided." Before the foundations of this world, you picked a spot that you designed to resonate with me. Where is it? I want to call that home. Hmm. The principle of the earth is it belongs to God. And when he attaches it as a gift of inheritance, saying, I'm going to give this spot to my son, Timothy, you know, when, when he makes that decision, he's choosing a spot that he knows resonates with what your design is. You know? It's the best decision that he can make for you. It's going to be a gift to help you do what he created you for. And yeah. the blessing that's on the spot, if you know where your inheritance is, is on that spot, you always have an open heaven. Now, I want to base that on the scriptural truth that in Chaldea, Abram heard God. But when he gets to his inheritance, he has a face-to-face visitation with his maker. Yeah. And from that point forward, he knows the places in his boundaries where God always shows up. And he frequents them. And he teaches his sons. So Jacob goes to the spot that Abram had camped at one time, that Isaac had camped at one time, and each time they had had some encounter with God, and he dreams a dream on that spot and calls it the gate of heaven. It's because it was a gate of heaven for his father and his grandfather. You know, yeah. he, he probably didn't understand the full benefit of it, but he knew something about this is a good spot to stop and spend the night, even though it doesn't look like much outwardly. You know? <laughs> and I think we need to get more in touch with this. In Scripture, and I'll end with this, when Israel was out of the land and in exile in Egypt and then again in Babylon, the text says that they stopped singing the songs of Zion because they were so grieved about having to be carried away into captivity and ended up in Babylon. They stopped singing the songs of Zion. And then 70 years later, when Daniel gets a hold of Jeremiah's scroll and he realizes that the time is up, it's about time to, to be released from Babylon, the text mentions that they began singing the songs again. Now, what's interesting about that is if I don't know where my inheritance is, I lose and I forget the the wisdom that my forefathers had, and I stop singing to the land. Yeah. 
But as soon as I come back into covenant with God and I'm in the right timing with him and I know my, my that he's getting ready to do something, he's telling me what he's about to do, my spirit begins to release that song again. And the earth is singing your name. And your spirit is supposed to be singing over that spot that he's given you the highest level of grace to steward over. If we connect those places, then the land begins to transform very easily. One of the problems that we're having with with the task of transforming cities is we're not answering this piece. We're not settling the inheritances with God's help. So we're trying to sometimes transport, transform a spot that he wants to transform as the king of kings, but it may not be my job if I'm in the wrong place. You know? hmm. And I need to connect it with somebody that actually does have the stewardship there. Then we start gaining mileage. Uh, I've seen this a lot with big churches, big ministries, major businesses. They sometimes make a claim on land and it's not theirs. And then wow. someone nearby God will begin to resonate them for transformation and they'll be ignored and not listened to in the process. And then when they finally endure and persevere and break through that, suddenly things uh, sort of hit the ozone and go miraculous. Mm -hmm. But this is why humility is so important for all of us because I I didn't understand this principle and I was trying to do everything correct in my life. And then I ended up owning a house that I purchased, and I thought, I told you for certain this is where God wants me. And then after I was settled in it for about 10 years, um, I began praying about inheritance. And the Lord said to me, I'm glad you're asking me about that topic. It really is necessary to understand to, to save the whole city. But now let's just talk about you. He said, the place that you're living now is not your inheritance. It belongs to a widow that you haven't met yet. One day when you meet her, I'm going to ask you to give her that house. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm praying for you to help me pay it off. (laughs) And you tell me I'm paying it off for somebody else. You see, that's exactly what I'm saying. But here's the deal. You're stewarding over something I own. That's the way God put it to me. You don't own that house, Timothy. You're stewarding over something I own. So if I ask you to give it to a widow, is it not mine? Hmm. And I went, well, yeah, but then where will I live? He said, well, don't worry. I have someone I've led to do the same thing for you. You're going to get an upgrade. Tim, that makes me think about our, our, our income because you could almost say that our income is a, we're stewarding our, our paychecks. And yes, I mean, there's the talk of the tithe and it being holy and so and such, but I'm, I'm even speaking of, you know, the 90%, the, the majority. And maybe we should be having this conversation with the Lord weekly or, <laughs> or, you know, however we're getting paid. It's like financial okay. check-in. Well, the, God. the more I've understood stewardship, the more I've understood how to walk in God's ways. Wow. 
And I think that we cannot leave when we start trying to say, I want to figure out how to pray correctly, spiritually map the territory and see transformation of the cities. I mean, one of my, one of my goals is I want every man, woman and child in Oklahoma to be saved, you know, and, you know, I've got a couple of pastors I prayed that with in covenant back in the nineties. And we all, uh, one guy named John Benefield threw that statement out and it was like he imparted faith to the rest of us that it was possible some way, somehow that every man, woman and child in Oklahoma could be, could be saved. And from that moment forward, I started zealously saying, Jesus, how? It, it, I believe it's possible now. So how, what do we need to do to see that? And the more I prayed that way, the more I've learned that I have to become a good steward. Uh, I have to release my my sense of ownership and trust that God is always going to be generous with me. But um, I don't want to claim ownership of his assets. You know? And at the same time, I don't want to not steward over anything he puts into my hands correctly. So you're right. Um, your wages are something we could consider this way. Uh, any assets we own, we need to probably run by the Lord again. Any desires that we have, I mean, this sounds weird, but even my desires now, I lay them on the altar before I will take them up. You know? I want to know, am I desiring something God wants me to desire? You know? And if not, I want it, I want it burned up. I don't want it. I don't want to pursue after it. Well, this is a, a whole way of life that, that you're describing, Tim, and it's it's a beautiful thing, but it's a it's a self denying thing and it's trusting our father that he's gonna lead us in the place that's the best and um You know, in yeah, in reality one of the things about the Nephilim I'll, we probably can end with this, so the the idea sure. that they came down on Mount Hermon <laughs> and they came down in rebellion. And then they schemed and found ways with power and might of their own right arm to take the stewardship of the earth away from the sons and daughters that God had created. And the war is not really over um, us being saved. It's really over the earth itself, you know. Are, you, are we going to do with the earth what God created it for with with our benefit? Or are we going to let it be abdicated to something wicked and evil until Jesus shows up and fixes it? You know, In the meantime, I'm not supposed to just endure that wickedness waiting for him to come. I need to step back into the stewardship with the power of God to, to transform the heavens and the earth with the design that Father originally blueprinted. You know, the powers of God, just like she, just like Laura described, the powers of God overrule the powers of the enemy every time when we understand the design. You know, they will submit. They will bow. They will let shackles be returned upon them. Everything they've tried to do to man, he's he's fixed it already. But we have to exercise the stewardship of it. You know, it's like it's like a court case, right? Like God always has the winning strategy for the defense. But Satan will win if we don't inquire, you know, uh, where to find these files that has the that has the information. We show up to court without those files, we're going to lose that court case. 
And I think just overall, if I could bookend it this way, all of this is spiritual meat. And uh, I just thank you and, and Dr. Laura so much for for your instruction and insight because I think this is spiritual meat that we need to chew on and uh, definitely would like to to follow up with you um, with both of you another time if she's willing and and we're just so thankful for your time well thank you for the opportunity I, I feel like we're, you guys are resonating with stuff that I don't, I don't get to talk about often enough and making a detailed case for others to follow in our footsteps is really important to me um I, I'm not the only one that needs to be doing this stuff. She probably feels that same way. Well, yeah, yeah, we're privileged to get to to connect you guys, and I hope hope uh, for for the two of your sakes too. You know, if if God leads to to collaborate more, I think you guys are are on the same wavelength that way. And that's one of the things that I get most excited about too, as Luke and I talk together and bring on guests. Is is what principles can we pull out of these? these anecdotes these life stories these instructive moments uh because there's so much more to be to be learning and applying and uh it takes discernment but uh, we just appreciate your heart tim and uh, thanks for your time okay i look forward to doing it again and blessings to you guys and pray that everybody that hears this will hear what god wants them to hear and do what he wants them to do absolutely absolutely All right. Thanks so much, Tim. All right. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye.